across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies! My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? Good afternoon, welcome to Flavour with Matt Bentman, Sue Bailey and me, Alan Alder. And our thanks to Ollie Slack for Sports Special. Today we bring you a new Cambridge company that's producing canned wines that have caught Master of Wine Jancis Robinson's attention. We hear about the history of Cambridge's orchards, including those you can visit, and one of which is described as a semi-wild wonderworld. We visit one of Cambridge's community pubs, which has just reopened. And we chat with Vito Mito about their meat-free dishes. Tequila! Let's begin with canned wines. Alan spoke with a new canned wine producer in Cottenham, but first he asked Sam Owens of Thirsty in Cambridge's Chesterton Road about how canned wines are regarded. Please be aware this isn't quite a good phone line. Um, it's, it's definitely starting to pop up more and more of it, both here in the UK and um, and, and internationally. So um, I think we'll see more and more canned wine and other new packaging formats. Um, I think we'll just see more and more of it. Right. And um, what's, what's customers' reaction to it, you know, when they first come across it? Especially younger, younger, younger guys and girls um, are, I think, pretty, pretty open to these sorts of things they aren't put off they don't have perhaps the same sort of baggage that, <laughs> um, associated with, with wine that perhaps older generations might have um, so I mean you know quite a lot of people think it's just it's quite cool right and the quality variable I suppose it's the same as with with a, with a bottle you know there's good and there's bad same with, with any packaging format there's, there's good stuff and there's bad stuff so it sounds like they're an up-and-coming thing. Alan then spoke with Ollie Purnell and Theo Goff of the Copper Crew, whose wines are just now coming onto the market. But first he wondered, why put wine in cans? First and foremost, it was, it was the eco-credentials of cans. So aluminium cans, 100% recyclable, and can be back on the shelf in six weeks. For us, that was, that, that was really important, and we thought that when we think about the sort of people who we would hope would buy our product, we thought that would, that would really resonate. The thing with glass is that it's recyclable to a point. So every time you recycle a bottle of glass, you lose a bit of, of the glass. So I think I'm right in saying that it's about 15 times you can recycle a glass bottle um, before you're left with nothing. So the idea with cans is once you make a can, it can stay a can forever, which is why in the UK, 75% of all the aluminium cans ever made is still, still in circulation. That's amazing. And then another, another important thing for us was moderation. You know, the, the classic thing of you open a bottle of wine, you don't really want a whole bottle of wine, whether it's with your family or, or with someone else. You put a bit in the fridge, forget about it, and then end up pouring it down the sink. 
and you know 250 mil can we think fits that quite nicely with a, lar a single large glass or, or two small and then final two things for us were you know you can take a can anywhere very easily um, doesn't break you don't need a corkscrew and you can trill it very fast and in terms of what's out there we felt that a quality canned wine was was hard to come by in the UK and that's that's what we wanted to provide. Okay we'll come on to quality in a minute but it also strikes me that a can is handy to take to festivals such as Glastonbury where they don't allow glass. Yes definitely uh, a big focus for us um, we came up with a with a business plan for 2020 which was almost sort of exclusively focused around events actually obviously you know many many things have now got in the way of that um, but we're very hopeful that 2021 you know we can come back come back to the festival scene yeah as you say it would be a, you know a, a great thing a great thing for those kind of events i've asked one or two people about wine in cans uh, people who haven't met it before and the reactions are quite curious really like doesn't the wine taste of tin and when I tasted the sample you sent me, <laughs> I'm ashamed to admit that I was rather surprised that it didn't. And yet we eat lots of stuff out of cans and never expect it to taste of tin. So I, I feel there might be some irrational reactions. Have you met them? Absolutely. I mean, you're certainly not alone in thinking that there might be a slightly metallic tinny taste to the wine. But I think we're very careful when we're selecting, blending the wine, and then actually in the canning process to kind of take all precautions and measures so that that doesn't happen. I mean, there are some canned wines on the market, I won't name any names, where there is a slight metallic, <laughs> metallic taste or a slight funny smell when you open it. And we went through the whole process of selecting, blending, and canning, really making a conscious decision to an effort to try and avoid that. Um, so I'm glad you thought that wasn't it. I think it worked well, actually. Uh, with a delicate thing like a white or a rosé, you'd notice, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There's, re there's really no hiding, hiding <laughs> place <laughs> with that. So is there a marketing issue with canned wines if some people have that misguided feeling? I think I think there's, there is a slight hesitation. But what we've found is as soon as you get the product in someone's hand and they taste it, it just immediately melts away. At that point, a bit, bit like yourself, they realize, they can see that there's no metallic taste, there's nothing to kind of be hesitant about, and it is just really good wine in a can that you can have on any occasion. And actually, we found getting it into people's hands in the first place has not been that difficult. There's certainly a novelty factor mm. around that does a little bit of that first marketing effort for us uh, which which has been really great really helpful and I think you know our branding is the, is the other sort of key thing of trying to trying to get it in front of people and all we were trying to aim for when we were thinking of how we wanted to label the cans was you know something that if you saw on a shelf you'd, you'd pick it up at least and go mm, you know that what is that so I think those two things together has has yeah really helped us in terms of getting over that that psychological barrier of, of canned wine Who's your prime market? Who's it aimed at? I think what so what we had in mind initially was young professionals and sort of early families, uh, people who like to go to food and drink events, um, and people who were really interested in having just a, a better quality product. 
So the kind of people who would go to Thirsty in Cambridge to buy their beers rather than buying them from Sainsbury's. And I think one thing that we were, we were guilty of in terms of when we were thinking of our, um, our market was actually that, you know, the branding and the idea of canned wine, especially the moderation argument, actually really resonates with, with the sort of older age group, um, which is sort of our parents' age and even a bit older, which, is, which has been fantastic. My grandmother and her friends, for example. Yeah. An excellent, an excellent option when they're on their own and they want a drink in the evening, but yeah, a bottle of wine is, is just too much or it would, have, it would be vinegar the next time they came round to it. You've mentioned quality a couple of times. How did you find your vintner? So I used to live in South Africa um, when I was younger and I met... Sam Lamson, who we've actually co-founded this business with. Uh, and he is a very successful winemaker in South Africa, very young. He's only just left university. But while he was there studying, he set up his own wine label called Minimalist Wines, which is kind of really high-end, fine red wines at the moment, but got really great reviews uh, over in the UK, especially from Genesis Robinson, who wrote him up as one of her unofficial wines of the week. Well, that's very impressive in, indeed. It, yeah, he, he really had an incredible year last year. Um, and I'm sure even COVID allowing he'll have another one this year. But it was when he was over here last summer launching his wines in the UK at wine fairs and things that I actually met up with him again. It was over various conversations during that week that I first kind of sounded him out on on working with us and, and whether putting wine in cans would actually work. You know, we went through all the quality arguments, whether he thought he could do it, find and make the right wine so that we had none of that metallic taste. Um, yeah, he's been really central. I think it's fair to say we would, we would have struggled without his guidance, <laughs> especially not being able to get to South Africa at the moment. We would have yeah, found yeah. it really hard. <laughs> yeah. At the moment, you've got a white and a rosé. Is there a red on the way? Yeah, so um, again, another bit of feedback we were sort of surprised by from our, our soft launch was people, people looking for a red. And yeah, so we, we're hoping to come out with two. End of September, early October. Um, and we'd like to come out with something which is, one which is sort of heavier um, and a bit bolder, um, which is going to be along the lines of a Bordeaux blend. And then something which is a bit lighter um, along the lines of a Merlot. Um, and at the moment, Sam is um, out and about tasting samples and yeah, making something up, which I think will be just as good, if not better than, than what we already have. How did it all get started though? I, I was living, I lived in the States for a year. And while I was there, I, I sort of anecdotally came across canned wine um, and also the, these drinks called hard seltzers, which are sort of like sparkling water with, with alcohol added. And what I noticed is that, you know, it was really, really growing very fast and people were, were really getting behind it. So I kind of had that idea just in the, in the back of my mind. Um, and when I came back to the UK, I met up with, with Theo just to, just to sort of talk generally, have a catch up. We got onto the topic of canned wine, and it became sort of very quickly very engrossing, uh, which I think made both of us think maybe there is something here. And then you know we did a bit of market research, 
thought things thought it looked like a good good thing to start in the UK, and then Theo got started speaking to to Sam about it all, and from there we we ended up uh, founding the company in in October 2019. So, is there any way of getting hold of some cans now? Just head to our website, which is www.coppercrew.co.uk, um, and you can get our cans in six, twelve, and twenty-four packs shipped throughout anywhere in the UK. Um, with free delivery on the 12 and 24. That was Ollie Purnell and Theo Goff of the Copper Crew, which is based in Cottenham. Uh, Their wines should be in the shops later this month, but in the meantime, as they said, you can order them from their website, coppercrew.co.uk. And I tried both the rosé and the white and enjoyed them both. They're light and good for a hot day. And no, they definitely do not taste of the can, not remotely. And my neighbour who tried some agrees. Uh, The cans are light and elegant, and Jancis Robinson, Master of Wine and the Financial Times wine writer, said, The Copper Crew have come up with two nicely packaged 25 centilitre cans of South African wine, both with quite marked acidity and light spritz. The rosé, a bit drier tasting than the Chenin Blanc, it has quite successfully been modelled on a Provencal pink from Grenache, Morvedre and Syrah grapes. On to our first news break now, and here's a place where you can enjoy your canned wine. The Park and Ride in Trumpington is hosting a drive-in, or a cycle-in. It's a film festival, and there'll be 16 films over 8 days. But even more important, we'll have Steak and Honor, Gorilla Kitchen, Frank Panan, Cafe Mobile and Arepa Station there. Now the cost is £27.50 per car and £10 per cyclist. Tickets and more details are available from the Cambridge Drive-In website and food can be ordered in advance from the vans. This is all going to be happening from the 20th to the 31st of August. Parker's Tavern in Regent Street has reopened outside on the terrace in Parker's Peace and inside in the restaurant where there's ample spacing between the tables. De Luca Cucina, also in Regent Street, is opening on the 12th of August. The government's Eat Out to Help Out scheme starts on Monday and runs to the end of August. It enables you on Mondays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays to get 50% off your meal and soft drinks to a maximum of £10 per person. It can't be used for alcoholic drinks or service charges. And you can use this offer as often as you want to and you don't need to make a claim of any sort and you don't need a voucher either. The cafe or restaurant just charge you less and sort the paperwork out with the government. Uh, And to my mind, one of the great things about it is that there's no minimum spend, so you can get half-priced coffee and cake as many times as you like. Uh, Here's part one of a list of most of the participating independents. There's a lot of them, so we've chosen just from the Cambridge City area. If you go to the gov.uk website and put Eat Out in the search box, it will guide you to a complete list of places that are within five miles of your postcode. Now, this list on the website is not completely accurate. Listing Subway as an independent is pretty wrong, uh, and at least one place in the listing has closed down. However, the following are involved in the scheme. Fitzbillies, Hot Numbers, Espresso Lane in Botolph's Lane, Copper Kettle, Cambridge Chop House, Smoke Works, Bread and Meat on Bennett Street, The Indigo Coffee House, Pint Shop, Senate Bistro, Novi, 
the Tiffin Truck, the Olive Grove, Oak Bistro, Nana Mexico, Parker's Tavern, La Raza, Savino's Cafe in Emmanuel Road, Tabanco in Green Street, Vito Mito to Bush, the Gonville Hotel and Parker's Tavern, and plenty more coming up in our next news break. Cousins Butchers and Deli in Grochester Street is doing free local deliveries and also a pre-order and collect service, which means you don't have to enter the shop if you don't want to. And Calverley's Brewery is doing free home deliveries too. You can order via their website. The Queen's Head in Newton is open for outdoor drinking in its new garden. Hours are Wednesdays and Thursdays, 6 till 9, and Fridays and Saturdays, 6 till 9.30. The Plough in Shepherd's Beer Garden is open on Saturday evenings and Sunday afternoon, with live music on Saturday, that's today, from Django's Tiger. Right, well, time for our next feature on this beautiful weekend. If you go down Market Passage today, you're sure of a big surprise, a plant-based one. Now, what is plant-based food? This guy will tell you. If I was going to describe our food, I would say it's kind of um, accessible Otolenghi. So we're using a lot of herbs, a lot of spices, Northeast Africa, Asia, really building the flavours within the food. That's what you've got to do. So, well, What have I got to do? I've got to introduce this guy. Well, he's better at it than me. Right, okay, my name is Justin Bone, I'm 50 years old, and I am one of the co-founders of Vito Mito, which is a plant-based street food brand which has just opened in Cambridge inside Tabouche in Market Passage. Justin is a guy with a lot of stories, so let's make the first one about food. Ever since a young age, I've, you know, I love my food completely and utterly. It's always been a passion of mine. I just felt that now was the time to go for the healthier food, I mean, I was actually very fortunate. My first ever bar job in Cambridge was in a place called the Blue Boar, which is in Trinity Street. Now, quite a few of your listeners might remember that bar. The head chef at the time was a woman called Angela Hartner. She was Gordon Ramsay's number two for many, many years. So Angela was actually one, the one that introduced me to Italian cuisine and food, and that's where I got my passion from. The two most important things, food and funk. Oh, I'm a funk boy. So, yeah, Tom Brown funking for Jamaica, anything by James Brown, you know, something upbeat, something something funky. No problem. Vito Mito is basically, you know, it's, it's in the title, it's Vito de Mito. What we're trying to say is that you don't have to have meat with every meal. The vegetables that are available to us, the pulses, the dishes that are available to us from across the globe, you know, some fantastic street food. I mean, most of Asia, when you think about it, is vegan. And so we thought that the best thing to do, especially in Cambridge, we wanted to, to, you know, set it apart from the other eateries, was just concentrate on this street food concept, make the vegetables centre stage, if that makes sense. So yeah, we've got the burgers on there, we've got, we've got Cambridge's only kebab. As far as I'm aware, I don't think anyone's doing a vegan kebab. We had the staples, but then we thought, no, there's more to it than that. So we introduced the curries, we've got street bowls, things like falafel popcorn, kimchi, steamed greens with peanut sauce, all these great dishes that are available across the globe, and we thought we'd bring them here. Plant-based food seems to have really taken off on a much higher profile lately. This year, we've seen Thrive, the plant-based cafe opening on Norfolk Street. Justin is good friends with them. And he mentioned burgers on the Vito Mito menu just now, along with many other things. And of course, these are plant-based burgers. 
And to make such burgers, you can use Satan. Now, what is Satan? For anyone who doesn't know, here's Justin. The best way to describe Satan is it's a wheat meat. So when you grind wheat, there's a protein that comes off it, a fine powder called seitan, and this is the wheat meat. And you can use that powder and you can mix it with herbs and spices and flavorings. And then you produce a dough, which is very similar to bread. From that, you can make many different products. We tend to pan AR, so we put, cover it in um, panko breadcrumbs. So you're trying to create the texture of chicken and the texture of kebab meat. But funnily enough, we had a customer today that ordered our chicken burger, which is made of seitan, and they were halfway through it before they realized it wasn't chicken. And I had to explain it to them, but they absolutely loved it. And on Sunday, we had a family of four halfway through their burgers, said how fantastic the burgers were. And I looked at them and I said, it's amazing what you can do with pea protein. And they looked at me completely blankly. And I said, this is a vegan restaurant. And the face was just, what? I said, yeah, that's not meat. And they were, they were literally bowled over, but they were really, really pleased. And again, I was trying to say to them, you know, with these great products that we have on the market, there's no excuse for a family not to have just one day off a week. You know, when's your veto day? I mean, we've started doing these veto boxes that you can get from us. But I was calculating the figures today. It's like if one family takes one day off a week, over the year they save over a quarter of a million of gallons of drinking water. You know, that's a phenomenal amount. We're talking over 6,000 square metres of rainforest saved. Just one day a week. Have a veto day, please. Justin is very frank. He'll talk about his past, he's ecstatic about his future, and he's passionate about Vito Mito. And he's also been to number 10. Ah oh, yeah, my uh, little visit to uh, number 10 Downing Street. Well, that all came about because I was in the industry for 25 years, the catering industry. I ran bars and nightclubs for 15 years and then restaurants for 10 years. Unfortunately, being around alcohol all that time, many people in the catering industry may well tell you this, I developed quite a bad drink problem to the point where in the end I literally lost everything. Business, house, wife, and I ended up on the streets. And that's when I decided that obviously maybe it was time to stop drinking. I like the fact that I managed to get to the street and then I realized it was maybe time to stop drinking. So I, I knew that I was going to be evicted and I rented a garage from someone who didn't know I was living there. And uh, I ended up doing my rehab in this garage. The only thing was that I had to leave it every single morning at six o'clock. And the only place that was open was a gym. So I would go to the gym every single morning and I'd start to lose some weight and feel a bit healthier and a bit better about myself. And eventually, after about four or five months of living in this garage and I'd given up the booze and sorting myself out and losing two and a half stone, the council finally found me and put me into a rehab house when I was there for 18 months. It was then that I set up the pop-up gym, which was a yoga events company. And we put on these huge yoga events and fitness events. And somebody heard about my story and they put me forward. And uh, yes, I was invited to number 10 Downing Street where I, I kind of gave a ray of hope to other alcoholics, if that makes sense. It was unbelievable. So I'll never ever forget it. And when I gave my story within the room, I got the standing ovation. And yeah, I was very, very proud. I was very pleased. It was just a story of hope, you know, that. You can think you've lost everything, but there is always a way out. There's always a way out. 
Many thanks to Justin Bone of Vito Mito, which you can find at Tabouche in Market Passage. One thing I'd like to point out, their menu, whatever main course you're ordering, be it a Middle Eastern dish, barbecue jackfruit, Vito burger, chicken burger, curry, whatever, they're all £7. In Justin's words, food from the earth shouldn't cost the earth. Vito Mito is 100% plant-based, and if you'd like to check out their menu in full, it's available online at vitomito.com and on Instagram at vitomito. I'm free. This is where we would normally bring you details of free food available now in and around Cambridge, but we can't today because we're pre-recorded. But we can tell you that the information comes from the Olio app, which is free to download. Yes, and the Olio app is in full flow. Some examples of what's been recently available include fresh coriander, an invitation to pick your own Bramley apples, and there's even tinned food from Sainsbury's, including ravioli, sweet corn and tuna steak, also from Sainsbury's, but not in tins, sheets of wholemeal pasta, and as usual, plenty of items from Pret-a-Manger. And there's another free app called Too Good To Go, which several food outlets in and around Cambridge use to sell any unsold goods they have shortly before they close at knockdown prices. On our last programme, we spoke with Monica Askey, who is joint author of a book about the orchards of Eastern England and who provided the recipes for it. During the week, Alan spoke with the other co-author, Tom Williamson, who focused more on the story behind the orchards. Alan commented to Tom about the fact that the chapter on Cambridgeshire's orchards was entitled Cambridgeshire, Orchard County. Certainly by the 19th century, Cambridgeshire is top county. I mean, there's an extraordinary density of orchards. Uh, Certainly by the 1880s, they are, I won't say everywhere, they're concentrated in particular districts, but there are an awful lot. Right. What sorts of areas then? Well, uh, three, really. The most interesting in some ways is right north end of the county, round about Wisbech. There's a very early orchard industry, fruit growing industry. I mean, that's in place by the late 18th century. So it's, it, it is very early. Um, yeah. Elsewhere, yeah. Ma- there's mainly just small farm orchards until the 19th century. And then you get uh, a big development in the area between Cambridgeshire and the, Cambridge, sorry, and the Fens. So in parishes like Cottenham, uh, Willingham, places like that. So that's the second. And the third is in south and southwest Cambridges, where Melbourne, Meldreth, Haslingfield, Harston, the Eversdens, uh, they have a lot of orchards. So there's three main ones, North Fens, the sort of Fen Edge, and the south of the county on the Chalk. And were they all growing the same sort of fruit? The ones in the North Fens around Wisbech, they're mainly apples. Uh, and increasingly, as you move, in, move through the 19th century, they are concentrating on Bramleys, on, on Bramley seedlings cooking apples. The other two um, grow a lot of apples, uh, but they're also plums. Now, pears and, and stuff are also grown. Cherries were grown in Soham on a very large scale in the late 18th, 30th, 19th century, but it's basically apples in the North Fens around Wisbech, and the other areas are basically apples and plums. I'm amazed by the cherry orchards around Soham. Are there, are there any remnants of them left still? 
No, they don't seem to. So, um, area, no, the cherry orchards seem to disappear quite early. And what about local varieties? Are there many of those? There are some local varieties, but they never have quite the success of ones from elsewhere in, in England. And I think that's partly because Cambridgeshire didn't have a really big nursery company on the scale of Laxton's of Bedford, for example. Um, but there are some. Uh, there, there are some early plum varieties, Willingham Gage, uh, the Cambridge Gage, which are recorded by the 19th century. Um, you can still get hold of those, but they're rare. There are some apples. There's one, the wonderfully named one, the Jolly Miller, which is almost certainly named after a pub in Cottenham, which is again there in early date. And then there are are things, uh, there are a number developed by Chivers, who are the the fruit growers and jam company uh, based uh, in Histon, a number developed by them in the 19th and 20th century. Uh, Histon favourite, Chivers Delight. And there are one or two developed by in country houses. There's a kind of tradition for developing new varieties in, in very posh kitchen gardens by head gardeners. So there's one called Lord Peckover, for example, which was developed in the gardens of Peckover House. But none of them certainly by the 19th century are grown on a particularly big scale. Emneth Early, which is just outside Cambridgeshire, developed in West Norfolk at Emneth in 1897. That's pretty popular in the Fen orchards. But no, the the orchard tradition is is more to do with scale, really, than with particular varieties. Why were there so many orchards in Cambridgeshire, do you think? Now, that's a complicated one. It's partly the climate's pretty good for growing trees. It's partly the soils, and it's but it's also to do with, with transport. What you need to get an orchard industry growing is you need the right environmental conditions. Uh, you need a market. And, and also, to some extent, you need a lot of small farmers. It's a small farmer's game, really, apple and, and other fruit growing. And, and in Cambridgeshire... What, de- what determines both a lot of orchards in Cambridgeshire and where in Cambridgeshire you have them is that mixture of environment and transport and to some extent social structure. It's a complicated old mixture. That's what makes it fun to study, actually. And the Chivers orchards, they were very successful, presumably because of the transport links. They were. Uh, I mean, the story there is, is, is kind of sums a lot of it up, really. Um Stephen Shivers, Shivers, have you pronounce it? He he starts growing uh, apples on a large scale after the arrival of the railway, and and the orchard is indeed next to the railway station, uh, and uh, it it's it, 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 just a grower to start with. Uh, but one of the places he's sending his fruit to is Bradford, and he's sending so much to Bradford that he actually sets up a distribution depot there which is two sons, who I think are John and William, they're put in charge of. And they realise in the 18, early 1870s that the main buyer in Bradford is a jam manufacturer. So they go back and say to their father, um, you know, what are we doing? We can make more money making the jam ourselves. So 1873, again, next to the railway station, everything is fixed to the rail lines, really. Uh, they they set up a fact, small sort of well it's just converted barn really and then they build this huge factory which then gets extended again and they branch out into canning and all kinds of other things it's a huge thing 
and they're partly um, processing the fruit from their own orchards which also increase in scale but they're also drawing in produce from all the other orchards around which increasing their therefore shift out of apples and in particular even more into plums because it's it's the market yes so what led to the decline you get this standard line people come out with um that it's all the fault of the european union and 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 the flooding the market with gold and delicious and you know there's an element of truth in that but uh there'd been increasing competition from foreign markets particularly from canada actually right back in the early part of the 20th century and that's intensifying so it's foreign competition uh, and actually the rate of of the decline in orchards in, slows slightly after we join the um european union so european union isn't the own and foreign competition from them isn't the only explanation but it's part of it largely because the common agricultural policy makes it more economic to plow orchards up and use them as a cereal growing land as arable land and that's accentuated by the fact that whereas you can increasingly through the 50s 60s and 70s automate um cereal farming with combine harvesters and the rest you you can't really do that with fruit growing and there is a increasing problem with with getting people to work in the orchards uh, particularly during the the seasons of 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 harvest um in a sense this is all part of a kind of globalization of of commodities it just becomes cheaper growing stuff elsewhere and the alternative ways of using land um become more profitable and one of them is is building uh, but the other thing it's not a rather long answer but the other thing it seems to me is that the decline through the 60s and 70s of people cooking their own food to a significant extent led to a, a, an increasing homogenization of what the processing industry wanted so that that in, it encouraged them to source abroad it also saw sadly a, a, a steady contraction of the number of varieties available which had been going on already to some extent but goes much faster through the 60s and 70s and i often think that 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 fruit is a bit like like beer except that it didn't get the reverse so in the 60s and 70s beer becomes homogenized it becomes pretty awful there's relatively few people making it but the campaign for real ale and the rest reversed that process to a large extent and in a sense in a way something similar happened to our our fruit industry but it hasn't been reversed in the same way Cambridge University had orchards I think didn't it the university did have orchards um it had it's not clear how common they were or how impor- important they were uh, early on and uh, it, it seems that many of the cambridge colleges probably sourced their fruit in the markets like everybody else and that becomes more true as you move into the 19th century because of pressures on space the colleges themselves get bigger and build on their own grounds etc uh, the two great exceptions to that are girton and and homerton girton uh, they and they're both significantly late colleges which were then on the outskirts of the city so there's more space and also i think because i can't kind of prove this but i think because they're women's colleges and because they're being built at a time when um 
uh, and this is when I say uh, build at a time, I should say Homerton in his 1870s, no, 1890s, and, uh, and, and Girton is the 1870s. They're coming at a time when educated people are getting quite interested in, in the heritage of, of, of fruit. And I think those things go together. The additional space, women's stuff, and, and the fact it's, uh, it's quite late on, they have orchards. Uh, the one at Girton in particular is absolutely incredible. It's one of the best, well, it probably is the best orchard in Cambridge or one of them, one of them, one of the two. Is it possible to visit it? It is if you, if you contact them first and ask. And if you go there, you will see an extraordinary uh, place. A lot of the original trees are still there. So they're really old because apple trees don't make much more than 120 years normally. And it's it, like a lot of the uh, these institutional orchards. It's got a lot of cooking apples, brownie ceiling, um, but it's got Northern Greening, Warner's King, Norfolk Leafing, Blenheim Orange, Bismarck. What else? Monarch, Dr. Harvey, Dumbledore's Seedling. I mean, it's great. There's pears as well, and and there's plums, and and wonderfully. Uh, and showing, I think, that it's partly a kind of um, recreational landscape for the students, even when it was first built. Uh, showing that is the fact there's a lovely cobnut walk, a walk lined with cobnuts along the northern side. It, it's, yeah, as I say, it's one of the, well, it's a matter of taste, one of the two best in Cambridge, I'd say. The obvious question, what's the other one? Well, I would, if, if you fancy a bit of a drive, it is in Cambridgeshire, but only just. There's a wonderful orchard at a place called Rummers Lane in uh, in Wisbech, just southeast of Wisbech, and and that's completely different from Girton. Girton, although the trees are old, looks like a managed orchard. The one at Rummers Lane, which was planted later in the 1920s, is now it's not derelict, but it's it's not cropped intensively. There are wonderful permissive footpaths, uh, which which go through it. And it's just like a kind of semi-wild wonderland full of these huge Bramleys. Bramley trees um, grow particularly vigorously and they absolutely love the Fenland soils. And so you've got these huge great trees, masses and masses of fruit, masses of wildlife. It's a kind of wildlife reserve, really. Um, it's a different experience that Girton, but, to Girton, but, but well worth it, well worth looking at. Uh, which orchards sell direct to the public? The, the two that spring to mind are, are Heath Fruit Farm, Heath Fruit Farm at Bluntisham, which um, sells, I think it sells from the farm, but it certainly sells in a lot of farmers' markets. It certainly serves as the Ely Farmers' Market. And, and uh, Mannings of Willingham, they've got a good farm shop. Both of those are, are, are good because they sell a, 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 a range of varieties. I, I mean, as you know, there are literally thousands of apple varieties and very few of them are available in your normal shop. Waitrose has been increasing its range, some of the others have, but if you want to get some really, really good things in season, then the, you want somewhere like Heathfruit Farm or Mannings. Uh, Mannings being Bushelbox Farm. Absolutely. Okay, and where can we buy the book? Well, um, you can get it in some uh, bookshops, but you can get it online. Uh, if you type in the words orchard recipes from eastern england uh if you put poppyland that's the publisher after that in your search engine it'll take you to their site 
uh, and it's it, it's appearing online in various ways but but always I always say this, always try your local bookshop first because we need to keep them going, don't we? We do indeed. indeed. It's a really enjoyable book, Tom. Uh, And we've talked to Monica Aske uh, in the past whose recipes are in the book and they look fantastic as well. So thanks very much. Good, good. Yeah, they are. They are absolutely delicious. I can vouch for that, having (laughs) eaten quite a few of them myself. Right. Perk of the job. Yeah. And that was Tom Williamson, joint author of Orchard Recipes from Eastern England. And it is a lovely book, uh, full of interest. Uh, It's A5 in size, it's got a soft cover, and it's 105 pages long. Uh, And there's much more information on the story of Cambridge's orchards, along with those of the other eastern counties. And there's maps, photographs, many in colour, and recipes. And the recipes are good too. The beetroot and Bramley soup look stunning. So if you go to the Poppyland website, that's the publisher, you'll find the book there and you can see some sample pages too. And I would strongly recommend it. Uh, And I know you've got a copy, Sue. What what did you think? Do you agree? I think it's a fantastic book. It's really interesting. I love the recipes and I love finding out more about the heritage and the history of orchards and fruit in Cambridgeshire. And on to more news now. Steg and Donna are open in Wheeler Street today, Saturday from noon until 8.30, and the vans are at two places tonight, Wild Sky Brewing in Linton and the Bank Micropub in Willingham, both from 5 till 8. Pizza Mondo is at the Black Bull in Brampton tonight and at Thirsty in Chesterton Road tomorrow from 5pm. Uh, if you want to eat in at Thirsty, you're, uh, you're advised to book. Maximum group size is six and the table will be yours for two hours uh, unless you've agreed longer on booking. You can book a table from 5pm on Sunday for Pizza Mondo. Thirsty is open regularly now on Fridays and Saturdays and you can book a table from 5pm on Fridays and 6pm on Saturdays. Contact them via social media. Scott's All Day in Mill Road is celebrating its first birthday this weekend with a bottomless brunch. You choose your drink and brunch options and your drink will be refilled for two hours. Booking is essential. On now to our second tranche of independents which are participating in the government's Eat Out to Help Out scheme. Uh, Café Abantu, Norfolk Street Bakery in Station Road, Bridges, Galleria, Stem and Glory, The Locker, The Punter in Pound Hill, Effie's, La Margarita, The Maypole, The Blue Ball in Granchester, Look Tie at the Cricketers, Jamaica Blue in Lion Yard, uh, Butch Annie's, Chukasa in Mill Road, The Architect in Castle Hill, La Maison du Steak, uh, Seven More from Mill Road, The Edge Cafe, Modigliani, Little Petra, Rocker's Steakhouse, Cambridge Gourmet Grill, Maurizio and Scott's All Day, uh, which will be opening a day earlier, i.e. on Wednesdays, to make it possible. Um, two more in Norfolk Street, Thrive and Zonghua Snacks, and three in Newnham Road, Riceboat, Salathong and Millworks. This just in, even more places participating in the Eat Out to Help Out scheme. The Catch Fish and Chips in Burley Street, Chai Street Food and Amelie in the Grafton Centre, the Devonshire Arms, the Box Cafe, Prana, Navadanya, Yippie Noodle Bar, the Alexandra Arms, Vito Mito, Little Soul in Regent Street, Harriet's Tea Rooms and the Gardenia on Rose Crescent. 
Uh, by the way, the eat out to help out scheme applies only if you eat at the premises concerned, so it's not for takeaways. And that's most of them. Others may well have applied late and are still being added to the government's list, which can be found at gov.uk. Uh, and I must say, while I'm pleased about all of this, the comments about encouraging people to eat more while simultaneously encouraging people to eat less and avoid obesity is a rather curious position. So now, on to our next feature. And this one is about the reopening of a community pub, the Hare and Hounds in Halton. And Sue met up with manager Tom Canning for a chat. It is a lovely little pub in the Cambridge countryside. It has been owned by the community for the last three years or so. The current tenant is leaving this week, which is, uh, what date is it now? It's the 29th of July. So I'll be opening up again on the 4th of August. Why was it rescued by the community and how? It was one of these wonderful community interest companies. Uh, we've, we've seen a few around Cambridge. I've, I've actually run one of them before, the Plan Fleet at Horningsea, whereby a pub has either been run down or not been open or mismanaged by a, by a big brewery or, or what have you. Um, the community, the, the villages group together and invest in uh, a community resource, which, which a pub is. That sounds fantastic because Halton's not an enormous village, is it? No, it's it's not. I mean, the pub itself is 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 small. Um, I think we can we can squeeze about thirty people inside, uh, probably even less now with the social distancing measures. Uh, but we've got a nice outside space. But the village, from from what I've seen in in the few weeks I've been in consultation with them about taking on the pub for them, are fantastically supportive and really want to to see it do well. And I'm very grateful that they've 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 asked me to to be part of that. Because you've got quite a history in terms of experience of managing and running. Pubs, haven't you? Yes, I mean, I've, I've been in the industry for about 20, 21, 22 years now. I've settled in Cambridge about 12, 13 years ago. I've worked in some very, very lovely places. I've been very fortunate to, to run some lovely places. And yes, yeah, so, so somehow the stars have all aligned and I've, I've ended up at the Heron Hounds in Halton. So, what are your plans going to be? I think initially make it open, accessible, and look after the local community. Yeah, I, I just want to see the pub open bustling doing well um, and I think with the level of support that I'm getting from the village so far I, th- I think it is it is well supported so it's just a case of giving back to them what they invested in. Does that mean you'll be having local beers local brewed beers? Oh d- definitely um, I've got some very good relationships with quite a lot of local brewers some some even further afield I mean you could describe some as, as old man's beer but you know at the end of the day people want to drink what they want to drink arrogant to, to think that I know better than anybody else um, we will it'll be a, a trial and error period certainly so you're talking real L yeah um, I, I had a conversation yesterday with a, a chap who imports Belgian beers I'm quite keen to to look at Belgian beer as, a, as an option but again that that all depends on what people want I mean I, I don't have all the answers but I'm willing to try anything once which should be the local breweries you'll be working with uh, local breweries uh, would probably be uh, crafty in Stetchworth uh, a little bit further afield, Tring in Hertfordshire, even further afield, Grain in North Norfolk. A- again, it, people know how I, how I run pubs. It's there's never the same thing there on the on the, on the same day. You know, I try and keep the beer interesting, try and keep it fresh. Really, just give people something different to drink. In terms of food, because food is often a really 
or has been an important part of pub offerings now. Yes, um, we're very lucky. There is a chef who, who lives in the pub called Tim. We've been having good good chats about what his ideas for, for, for the menu are. What we're looking at is traditional pub food, but really done well. Tim trained to a very, very high standard, um, so I've got high hopes for what, what he will be producing. We have had a conversation about taking one of my favourite things in the world, which is a Philadelphia cheesesteak sandwich, a Philly cheesesteak, and, and doing something with that, because, as you know, the, the Halton beef is, is quite famous, and it would make sense to, to make use of what's on our doorstep. I believe you were talking about pies as well. Yes, uh, so Tim has, has a great reputation for pies, and uh, I think it's, it's one of the great staples of pub food, is, is a comforting pie with a proper bottom and top, not a casserole with a lid on it. So Tim's got some really good ideas for that, looking at vegan options for those as well, but we're really, really hoping that those are are a sort of centre point for, for us and, and what, what we offer. So that will be more the autumn type of food, possibly? Yes, definitely. I mean, we, we're taking it on in, in August, so we haven't got much of summer left, so we are sort of forward-thinking towards autumn, winter, that sort of time of year. Are there various community groups that have been associated with the pub like darts or patank or anything like that there's a patank pitch in the back it would be nice to make use of that there, there is a very well supported cribbage league uh, in the pub there is a very well supported uh, weekly pub quiz um, again it's it's all about the community and what they want to use the pub for you know it's, it's not for me to to sort of be on my high horse and say oh you know we are we are doing fine dining and this we're not about that at all we are we want to be at the heart of the community we want to be a community pub but we want Halton and and you know people further afield to to use the pub as as they see fit you have run a community pub before so you know what's involved in that type of thing yeah and it, it's it's one of the great things that has happened in villages is people being involved in their local pubs it's a privilege really to work for people who care so much about their, where they live or their village that they want to invest in it. You know, and end of the day, I, I'm just a, a guy who, who knows how to look after beer and can fiddle with a spreadsheet. For me, I, I'm, a, I'm merely a custodian of the pub. You know, I'm not the, the brickwork, the furniture, but it's, you know, as I said, it's, it's a great privilege to be asked to, to run it on behalf of, of these wonderful people who've invested to save their assets, their, their pub. We're all aware of the fact that with, you know, drinking at home during COVID, etc., mm-hmm. has meant that people perhaps have forgotten about their local community pubs and their local community assets but I think actually what's been shown now as we're beginning to come out of this is that people do want to support their locals. Yeah, very much so. I mean, you're you trying to keep my finger on the pulse of what other people are doing because obviously I'm, I'm not doing anything. I've, I've been off work since March 18th. Um, so I've been really interested to see how people are coping with it. I think I, I initially predicted that we'd probably lose a third of, of pubs due to this shutdown. But what I'm, I'm seeing is people are adapting. And that's not just the people operating the pubs, that is the, the people going to pubs. On the whole, I hope, you know, people will return. I, I don't see pubs being used uh, as, as they were before this situation in the same way for probably not at least until after Christmas or we know how, how we're controlling the, the COVID. But I'm hopeful that people will support their pubs and will use their pubs as once they're gone, they're gone. Which is why it's so lovely to have 
communities that think, yeah, we want to rescue it, we want to keep this going, it's an essential part of the British countryside and towns and let's carry on with it. Absolutely, it's, I mean, you, you know, we there's a lot of people who, who are very down on, on pub culture and pub ways and uh, this, that, but it is, for me, it is the great leveller uh, of society, you know, by the people I go drinking with, one's an engineer, one's one's uh, a corporate lawyer. There's probably a doctor, a judge, and, and you know, we are all on a level when we, when we go to the pub. And it's you know, it's it's where you know friendships are made. It's where business deals are done. It's it's you know where, where you you find yourself buying a, a side of venison for less than the going rate, shall we say? It's you know, it is the nub, the crooks, and the hub of the community. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Tom. And let's hope everyone who is listening to this will be thinking about coming along to visit at the Hare and Hounds. Is it? Does it have an internet? Yes, uh, we have a, a website uh, which is uh, hareandhoundshalton.co.uk. You can email us at hello at hareandhoundshalton.co.uk. Come, come and see us. Say hello. G- give us a try. And you know, we're happy to welcome anybody. Mm. Are you open most days? My plan is I want to be open all day, every day. We will be closed on Mondays, but I would like to see us getting back to some sort of normal in terms of opening hours and I would like to see us open as much as possible so pub can can be there and can be used so uh, my, my hope is that we will be open six days a week all day every day initially um, anyway yep so come visit Heron Hounds of Halton please thank do thank you very much Tom and that was Tom Canning do go along there when they open and say hi <laughs> And there is the familiar music that normally signals time for the latest food tweets from the city for today, Saturday. But today we'll use it to remind you that as well as being on Twitter, Flavour can be found on Instagram too, at Flavour105. And there's Green Onion signalling the start of our jobs section. Now there is a lot of competition for jobs right now, so you might consider seeing if you can visit the places with vacancies to get the edge over the other candidates. That would work best with independence, so choose a quiet time though. Dolcedo Patisserie wants experienced bakers, sourdough and patisserie full-time as well as assistant or trainee bakers at its new shops coming in Mill Road and in Eddington. Full details are on Dolcedo's social media. Stir in Chesterton Road urgently needs a brunch chef. The Earl of Derby in Hills Road has a vacancy for a chef, preferably with a year's experience. La Raza in Rose Crescent needs a chef, as does the bathhouse in Bennett Street. That's a Green King pub, and you can apply on the company website. The Ivy in Trinity Street is looking for a commie chef. You can apply via the Ivy's website. And Leach and Sons in Melbourne, they are looking for a deli chef. Culinaris in Mill Road is looking for a full-time person for their shop, with experience and a keen interest in food. Send a CV and covering letter to shop at culinaris.co.uk. And that's all we have time for today. We're here on alternate Saturdays at 1pm, repeated on Sunday at 2pm and Monday at 6pm. And then we're podcast. We certainly are. And you can find all of our previous episodes stretching back several years by using the podcast catcher of your choice. Now, coming up next on Cambridge 105 Radio today is All Out Folk. 
Kath Kemp is your host, looking at the early days of the Cambridge Folk Festival. Then at three o'clock, Alex Elbro is here with Cambridge Folk Festival at home, with live music and conversation from this year's local artists. It's Chris Brown's Soul and Dance Show at six, before All Out Folk returns with more of the festival's early days, including archive interviews from Dave Swarbrick and Stefan Grossman. Rock of Ages is here at 9pm, and this week host Paul Christoforou has Robert Tinkler as a guest. And finally, at 11 o'clock, it's another edition of Club Beats with Dave Price. But that's all from us. We will be back on the 15th of August. So, until then, goodbye. 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 Goodbye.